Welcome to Harmony Talk, a podcast about dreamers and doers. On Harmony Talk, we interview authors, inventors, entrepreneurs, artists who talk to us about how they made their dreams come true. My guest today is Neil Genslinger. He is a New York Times writer and a storyteller. Storytelling in the last couple of decades has really exploded onto American stages. It's an ages-old art form, but it's really become very popular. People line up to hear storytellers. People compete to be storytellers. In fact, Neil is a three-time Moth Open Slam winner, and he has also appeared at venues such as Out by Ten and Will this summer at Harmony in the Woods in Hawley, Pennsylvania, which is our sister production. I am your host, Lisa Champeau. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Lisa. All right, let's begin really at the beginning. What makes a storyteller a professional art form over, say, relating an anecdote or reading a story out loud? Well, the beauty of storytelling is that there is the whole range of storytellers from amateurs, if you want to use that term, people who have never done it before, and that's what an open slam is at uh, the Moth or any of the other storytelling organizations. Anybody can come in and literally throw their name in the hat, and if their name's pulled out, they get up and try to tell a five-minute story. So you go from that to the more polished storytellers who have done it a fair amount and who know that you have to uh, sort of work on your story, shape it. You have to practice it a bit, even though it's you're speaking off the cuff. It's not an actor acting. It's telling a story the way you would around a campfire or around the dinner table. But that said, you have it down well enough that you can deliver it smoothly and you know where the peak of the story is. You know what you're where you're trying to get to with the story. And so that's what really sets the good storytellers apart is they got all the whole package together and their stories really uh, draw you in. They paint a word picture and they take you somewhere and they land you at that spot at the right moment. So that's what sort of sets a serious storyteller apart from somebody who's just trying it for the fun of it. I guess everyone kind of believes they have at least one good story in them, or so it's said, but not everybody can really be a good professional storyteller. Not without uh, a little work anyway. And if you go, if you ever went go to one of the open slams at any of the storytelling organizations, you can very quickly see who has prepped and who hasn't prepped. People get up and they think, well, five-minute story, I can do that. And they get up and they get lost and they forget something and they back up and they say, um, you know, and a lot of that. And then the next person who's prepped themselves gets up and tells a nice, smooth five-minute story. And you can really see the difference between a story that has been worked on and shaped and thought through and one that somebody's told to their drunk friends one night, <laughs> got a laugh, so they're trying it in front of an audience of strangers, and it doesn't quite work as well. I've heard that story. Well, how did you become a storyteller? You kind of have an interesting history in that you were a film, theater, and TV critic at the New York Times, who a few years ago started writing obituaries. You're an obituary writer, which some could say is literally telling people's stories, the stories of their lives. How did you become a storyteller? Obituary writing is very much what you say. Everybody's life is a story, and writing and shaping a thousand-word obituary, which is what the ones I write usually are, is that's a type of storytelling in and of itself. I started out, I was writing, I'd always, you know, fiddled around. There were a bunch of people at the New York Times who have artsy side hobbies. There's a lot of theater people there and a lot of would-be playwright types and so on. 
I had written a couple of things and done readings of them at the various friends' events, and they went over pretty well. So I, 15 years ago, probably, I, I put together an evening of those pieces, three pieces that made up about a 90-minute evening. And I did a show, a little show at the New York International Fringe Fest or something, something like that. It was <laughs> no longer exists, but it was just a theater thing. I did this little show, and a bunch of people who came to it came up to me afterwards and said, you should try the moth. And I had never heard of the moth at that point. The moth was fairly relatively young at the time. Uh, so I found out what the moth was. I uh, talked to a, a pal of mine, a guy named James Brawley, who is going to be in my show at Holly, who is something of a moth legend. I said, "What? what is this moth thing? And people are telling me I should go try it. What is it? And he said, well, you, you go. It's an open slant. You put your name in the hat. And if your name is drawn, you get up and tell a five-minute story. And it was James who told me, don't think you can do that off the top of your head. If you want to be serious about it, think the story through, practice it in front of a mirror, and then go try a moth slam. So I went down to uh, the events were held at a bookstore in uh, Greenwich Village. And the other tip James gave me was the show starts at 8. If you want to get in, you got to be there at 7. That's how long the lines were. That's how popular this event was. So I went there at 7. I got in, and uh, they draw. If you want to tell a story, you put your name in a hat, and they draw 10 names, and 10 people get up and tell five-minute stories. The evening went along, and finally my name was drawn, and I was 8th out of 10. And it's always good at the story slam, little tip. It's much better to be late in the evening than it is early in the evening because people are a little drunker <laughs> late in the evening and your story goes over much better. I draw the eighth spot and uh, I get up there and I do my piece. It's a story. It's not about me. It's about my dad. And I really didn't know how it was going to go over because it was built entirely on one joke. It was, it was a one joke story that kind of required the audience to follow along and form the word picture that I was describing in their heads. It was the gist of the story was my father used to bring, he worked at a plumbing supply place and there was a tradition in our family. If you bought a new house, he would bring you the fixtures to put in a new bathroom and he would put it in for you. He was one of those guys. He was a, a World War II guy that did all his own home repairs. So he would bring, if you bought a house and you were a member of our family, he would bring a, a bathtub and a toilet and so on to your house and put them in. So one time he was doing that for my brother, Brian, and his car got a flat. It was a pacer, and it was one of those cars where, that the spare tire was underneath everything that he had loaded into the car. So he had to unload all these fixtures, a toilet and a bathtub and everything else. He's strewing them out alongside the New Jersey Turnpike to get at the spare tire. And before he can change the tire, it's a hot summer day. He's in his 50s. He needs to sit down and take a rest. So he sits down on the only thing that there was to sit down on, which was the toilet. That's the word picture. I wasn't sure if people were going to follow along. When I hit that that line about and he sat down on the only seat available to him the place just exploded and that taught me that at a storytelling event people are really locked into you they're really paying attention they're following along and you can do a lot of things in a story and the audience will be with you they will if you drop a reference early in the story and your story's 15 minutes long, and you come back to that reference, do a callback, as comedians say, to that reference you made 15 minutes ago. The audience will get it. They will be there with you. So that was my introduction. I won that event. I won the next one I did, and I won the one after that I did. If you win at a moth 
open slam, you then get invited to a grand slam, which is much bigger. The New York ones are held at the Williamsburg Hall of Music, which is a 400-seat arena, which is, again, jam-packed. And that was pretty intimidating. I did a couple of those, and that was a little intimidating. I bet it was. You mentioned James Brawley earlier, and I did happen to listen to one of his uh, stories on YouTube, and he talked about, it was it was funny, it was a little new agey, about uh, how he and his wife wanted to respect their child's placenta and were going to uh, bury it, but they lived in New York City and there was no place to bury it because they didn't have a backyard. And later on, when they moved and had a backyard and they were having dinner with some friends, the friends, the placenta came up and they said that they actually cooked their child's placenta and ate it. And I'm not going to divulge the whole story, but the point I'm trying to get up to here and the question I'm leading up to is, are storytellers' stories all about their own true lives? In other words, are they always comedic? Is that part of storytelling? Well, in the type of storytelling we're talking about, they're generally the first-person stories. There's something that happened to the storyteller or that the storyteller was involved in in some way that the storyteller found humorous or insightful or inspirational or terrifying. And the idea is in telling the story, you, the audience member, will feel some of that as well. There are other types of storytelling, too. There's folklore, you know, an old Irish folk tale or an old Maine fishing story that you're not your story, you're just telling the story. Or there's Garrison Keillor with his fake folksy story. That, right, right. Would that qualify as storytelling? Well, that's a type of storytelling, but it's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about first-person storytelling, stuff that happened to the storyteller. That piece of James Brawley's, I, I used to review theater at the time. So one, one night they sent me up to 59 East 59th Street, which is an off-Broadway house, to review this one-man show. This was fairly early in my reviewing career. I hadn't seen a lot of one-person shows at that point. And I came out of that theater just stunned by that one guy who basically just talking for 90 minutes. That's all the play was how entertaining he could be. And that was James Brawley. And the piece he was doing was the piece you're describing, which is called Life in a Marital Institution. Beautiful 90-minute piece about his marriage and his dying sister. And it's it wove together everything you can imagine. A lot of humor in the piece, but a lot of serious stuff too. And so you get the whole range in this kind of storytelling. A lot of times actually at the the Moth and uh, the other big venues, they tend to be a little dark, a little gloomy because there's you often get into a the storytellers trying to outdo each other with some terrible trauma that has happened to them and those that can make for a kind of a glum evening. I I know in my event in Holly, I've told my storytellers, uh, let's keep it upbeat. We've all had enough gloom and doom in the last year and a half. So, Oh, sure, with the pandemic. But you are the organizer of this event, which is called Firelight. How did you choose the storytellers? I basically asked James because I came to know him after reviewing his play. I asked a friend of mine at the Times who's uh, an actor and storyteller who I've has been to Holly before for uh, another event that we did there. And I hunted down uh, Michaela Murphy, who's another moth star who works at the Bucks County Playhouse because I figured Bucks County, she's sort of nearby. And then I completely by accident found uh, Amy Edgar, who is a nurse. There's a, this tells you how widespread storytelling is, the University of Pennsylvania does a nurse's story slam once a year, 
where nurses get up and tell some story about their nursing. It's all on video. And so I watched some of those. And the one that really impressed me was Amy Edgar's story that she'll be telling uh, on the second night of my event. So medical stories, certainly. <laughs> I know people want to hear them nowadays or, <laughs> or don't want to hear them because of the pandemic, but I bet she'll be very engaging. Yeah. And it's completely different from what you expect. It's not a something from the ER. It's a, <laughs> it's a different uh, type of nursing story. Right. Who is your audience, do you think? You mentioned earlier that if an audience picks up on something, they remember it. And audiences often come back and hear storytellers over and over again, as I guess you did with Mr. Brawley. Who is your audience? I think, and and I was talking about this with James yesterday, uh, I think the audience for this kind of storytelling has changed a bit over time. I think it started out being, the moth, I think, was formed maybe, maybe 25 years ago. And the reason it's called The Moth is because whoever started it had a vision of he wanted to recreate what he remembered from his childhood in the South or wherever he grew up, of relatives sitting out on the back porch telling stories, and the moths would be fluttering around the light of the porch because it was nighttime. That's why it's called The Moth. Anyway, it started out as just something he would try doing with his friends, and it grew from there into this giant storytelling behemoth. But I think early on it was, you know, writers, you know, people in, in the literary side of things. But once it really caught on, it, I think the audience skewed younger or more young people started coming and the stories started to change a bit. A lot more stories about the first time I tried pot or whatever it was. And, and so now I think it's a more universal type of audience now that this form of storytelling is so widespread thanks to the moth and thanks to NPR and This American Life and the other outlets. Well, I think the moth probably was the birth maybe of modern storytelling. I believe it was Georgia where he was from. The founder, George Dawes Green, I think was his name. The birth of modern storytelling, which I think is very different, and perhaps you would agree, from sitting around the campfire telling a tale. I mean, it is now truly a profession. People pay to hear you tell stories. There must be some pressure involved in telling a story up there on a stage. Certainly at the Music Hall of Williamsburg, that was pretty intense. Places, 400 people, and they all paid, I don't know what, to get in there. And all the other storytellers are pretty experienced storytellers. So the atmosphere is, it's both raucous and intense. And uh, I remember one night, I I thought I told a pretty good story one night, but then somebody got up after me and starts talking about his, his testicular cancer. I said, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because my story was fairly light. And then as he's telling his story about his testicular cancer, he, and then my girlfriend, who had breast cancer, and then I thought, well, I have no chance at all now. we got a double cancer story here. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, tell me just about some of your favorite stories. Certainly the one you told about your father was great. But some of your other favorite stories, like when you think about storytellers, are there a couple that just kind of really come to mind? whether it's yours or, or somebody else's? Well, I've done a couple of, that I'm particularly proud of, but it's a well I don't go to too often because I, I don't like stories that are too woe is me, I, have, I had this terrible thing happen. That said, one of my favorite stories that I tell is about my younger daughter who's disabled. She has a disability called Rett syndrome. 
And I think in that story, I got beyond the, oh, poor me, I have a disabled child, which you hear a lot of that in the, in the disabilities world. And I think I got beyond that into turning it into something more with a bigger message than that. It was a simple incident where uh, it was the first time I, the wife left me in charge of the kid and went out for the evening. And of course, I lose the kid. This is a, a universal father thing. And any, any father of any type of kid, if the first time they're left alone with their kids, they screw something up. And in my case, I, I lost the kid in the dark. <laughs> and she's a red child is nonverbal. She doesn't speak. So the first thing I do is I'm calling out for her until I realize, you know, it's, it's really kind of futile calling out for a nonverbal child expecting her to answer you. The reason I like that story is because it wasn't just about losing my kid, because as I said, every father's got that story, Some, somehow screwing up a, a parental moment with their kid. But it was that moment, and I remember this so clearly. Abby was only about three at the time, and I was still very much in this mode of that any parent of a child with a disability goes through, whether they will admit it or not, of thinking, well, this is the mistake. This isn't my child. This is some kind of mistake. It was that night that pulled me out of that. I'm searching around for this kid in the darkest night that we've ever had in Plainsboro, New Jersey. There was no moon. There was no nothing. As I say in the piece, I used to be a reporter in Farmington, Maine, which is Farmington, Maine is in rural Maine. That was my first job. And Farmington, Maine is the kind of place that all those oddball stories that you see as a little wire story at the bottom of a newspaper page. Farmington, Maine is where those stories all happen. Stories about guys who fell into a wood chipper and got chopped up or those oddball gruesome stories. So I not only read a lot of those stories, I'd written a lot of those stories. And so I sort of had this vision, well, that's how this story's going to end. I can't find my kid. It's going to end with, you know, her being, come wandering out into the street and being hit by a car. Or we uh, had a little pool in the backyard at the time. I thought she's going to go climb in the pool and drown. It's going to end some horrible way. And it actually ended with, I call the story, the most beautiful sound in the world. And the most beautiful sound in the world was the sound of my across-the-street neighbor dragging his trash can to the curb. It was 10 o'clock at night, and it was, the next day was trash day. So that enabled me to call over to him and ask him to go get a flashlight so I could look for this kid. And we very quickly found her. So he was just standing and leaning up against the wall of the house laughing because this she had pulled a practical joke on me. That was my interpretation of her laugh. And that was the moment I realized you know, she's not a mistake. She has a sense of humor. She's a real person. She's a real child. So it was very... Very emotional. How old is she today? Today she's uh, 24, so... Oh, wow. That was a long time ago, but... Yeah, yeah. That's a good story, though. Yeah, that's the kind of story. That's a type of story I like, where it's, the storyteller takes a simple event, what seems like a simple event, and finds the deeper meaning of it. Those are the ones I particularly like. I, th I think a lot of the, the stories about the trauma-based stories are a little too easy. They're basically, this terrible thing happened to me. Thank you very much, and everyone applauds. But I like the smaller things in which there's a, a deeper meaning or a deeper message or a deeper takeaway of some kind. Which is probably why you uh, have won a couple of Moth Open Slams and why you continue to, to be a good storyteller. I will say that I did read one of your obituaries, and I was—I thought it was great. The headline was um, "Black Star in a White Circus," 
And it was the story of the aerialist who galloped on elephants and was, uh, of course, one of the few uh, African-American aerialists at the time. And it was a great story. And here I was reading an obituary and actually enjoying it. It wasn't even somebody I knew. So storytelling is a wonderful art form. And we look forward to it uh, this weekend in Hawley at Firelight with your other guests, James Brawley and the nurse, Amy Edgar. And uh, Michaela Murphy from uh, the Playhouse, the Bucks County Playhouse, and uh, Chris Harkham from uh, one of my colleagues at the Times, who's got a couple of new pieces he's going to try. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you so much for being with us, Neil Genslinger. I really, really appreciate your telling us about storytelling, and we look forward perhaps to another visit with you on Harmony Talk. Harmony Talk podcasts are brought to you by AM Skyer, an international insurance agency, broker, programs manager, and reinsurance company with specialties since 1920. I'm Lisa Shampo. Talk to you next time.